preserved us and kept us, that he's been with us. Um, I'm so grateful to the Lord for his goodness and his kindness toward us. I'm thankful for the Lord for his preservation and his goodness. Um, you know, it's one of those things, I'm getting to that age now when you start to realize why people used to say what they used to say, and those cliches weren't just cliches. To see another day really is the honor and the glory of God because there's so much that has happened in the world, so many different ways that things could have gone, but it is but by the goodness and the grace and mercy of God, y'all, that we are here, that we are here, and so we are so grateful for that. I'm grateful this week to be back in the book of Romans. We have gotten all the way down to Romans chapter 11, and if you look, we are really getting to this place where we can reflect on what the mind of God is. And so today's sermon is titled, Inside the Mind of God. As we've journeyed through Romans, there is depth that I think we all can clearly see, but more than anything, we realize that we don't really fully grasp and understand the mind of God. Now, some people may say, well, that's cliche to say we don't understand God's mind, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't seek to know God. But should we seek to know God's mind or should we seek to know the ways of God? And I think once we start to understand God's ways, then we can begin to understand his mind. How God comes up with the plan of salvation, I can't understand. I can't reason in my mind how God can work from non-existence in eternity past and know that man would fall and have a redemption plan before the fall of man. I can't make sense of that. But I can understand why he has the plan of salvation. I don't know how he did it, but I know that he did it because he loves us. The way of God is that he cares about every single one of us, all of us who have been created in his image. And I think if we as believers can land, yeah, I may not understand all the complexities of God's mind, but I can understand that the reason why he does everything he does, at the end of the day, when everything is said and done, is because he's good. I don't understand how he made it happen. I don't understand all the inner workings of his mind, but at the end of the day, I can understand that God is nothing but good. And that's what we need to learn today from this text. God's ways for us are a glimpse into his mind. Now, I've never seen the movie, but I did read a synopsis. In the movie, A Beautiful Mind, we see that this man who can understand all of these complexities whether it is science or mathematical formulas, he can understand all of this because of the beauty of his mind, but you learn quickly in that movie that just because his mind was beautiful, it didn't mean that his character was. It didn't mean that his ways were beautiful. Y'all, that is not the same with God. The beauty of God's mind shines through the beauty of his ways. And so we are looking today at Romans 11. We're going to start at the very first verse, and we're going to work our way all the way down to verse 21. Romans 11 and 1. And Paul writes this. He says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of 
of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bound the need to bail. So, too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. But the rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap a stumbling block, and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they may fall? By no means, rather. Through their trespasses, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, And if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch, then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean? But life from the dead, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, don't be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you, you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Let's pray. Lord, as we jump into this word, God, it is at times difficult to understand Even the words that are written in this book, which are at best a marred reflection of who you are. But God, as we read these words, help us understand who you are. Help us understand how in the complexities of your mind that your ways are perfect, they are just, and at the core of who you are, you are good. That is what we need to be reminded of. Help us see that today in Jesus' name. Amen. So, yeah, this is a pretty weighty passage. It's a long passage and a long statement that Paul is trying to get off here. But it's going to be really good and really important for us to actually understand it. Now, if you remember last week, he closed out by saying that even though Israel had heard the truth, some of them had still chosen to disobey. And so as we've learned, Paul is great at asking these really tough 
questions. And he asks one here just to begin this whole soliloquy. He says, has God rejected his people? Now, his people here are the Israelites. He says, has God rejected them? If God had a plan for the Gentiles since the Jews rejected, does that mean that he rejected the Jews? Well, no. He actually says the reason why you know this can't be true is because I am an Israelite. He says, I come from the tribe of Benjamin. So I know that God has not rejected all of his people because he has not rejected me. And it's a really important point. Even if they rejected God, God had not rejected them. Why is that so important? You see, when you just try to read this and you think, oh, this is just talking about Israel, this is just applying to the Jews, then you're going to miss it. What he's saying is not just true of the Israelites. It was true of Paul. It's true of every single one of us. Every single one of us, regardless of where we stand now, at some point in our life, you know what we did? We rejected God. We rejected God. We saw what Christianity offered. We saw what it meant, and we rejected him. But Paul's point is not just about those Israelites. Yes, they rejected him, but he hasn't rejected them. You know what that means about us? Even in the state when we rejected God, guess what God had not done toward us? He had not rejected us. Why is that such an important point? Because inasmuch as all of us know that we were not rejected, that's how we know because we're saved, all of us also know people that as they currently stand and live, who are rejecting God. And it is tempting for us as fallible Christians to say this is who they will always be. God has fixed them in this place. They are rejecting God, therefore God has rejected them. But that's actually not the case at all. The case as we read this scripture into the mind of God is regardless of how people treat God, God loves them anyway. As a people, they have become the Israelites, hopeless. They have become lost. And maybe they even seem to be forsaken but all the while, God had a plan to redeem them. And this gives us hope and encouragement. Because we know there are lots of people in our own lives who have taken a hard position against God. But the beauty is this. I have no impact on who God will save. I can share the gospel. I can be long-suffering. I can sow seeds of the truth. But ultimately, salvation is the work of God. 
And let me tell you why that's a good thing and that's a bad thing for us. That's a good thing because even when I have rejected people that have rejected God, God ain't necessarily rejected them. There are people in my life, whether actively or passively, maybe I'm not the only one in this room, that I have just decided I don't know if there's any hope for them. But even in my rebellion, even in my unwillingness to love the way God loves, that does not change what God can and will do through them. Why is that a bad thing? Because there is no more painful and joyous feeling than to see God save someone that we gave up on. Because even though we rejected them, even though they rejected God and they rejected us, God in his infinite wisdom still drew them to himself. The brilliance and the beauty of the mind of God is nothing like the mind of man. I can't relinquish this idea, by the way. How? How is God able to love people who reject him? I can't do that. I have a very difficult time loving people who don't love me back. How is God able to do this? I think this is how. Because God loses nothing in loving others. God can't go bankrupt on love, and therefore there is nothing risky about how God loves. This goes back to what I've said before, that the love of God is actually not reckless. It is not irrational, but it is just. And just because it's not the way that we do it doesn't mean that it's wrong. God can love in ways that we could only hope to love. Now, what is the depth of that love? At the end of the day, what is the depth of God's love? I would say one word. Preservation. Preservation. God preserves us in our lostness. Y'all, it does not take a lot of remembering for me to flash back in time when I wasn't a Christian and think about all the stupid things that I did that should have set off a chain of reactions or at least in that moment should have taken my own life away in my losses because I was rejecting God and I look back now and all I see is preservation. I, at times, should have ended my own life because of my stupidity, but God. And he preserves all of us to save us. I remember growing up, I hated it. Ugh. My mother and my grandmother, 
saved and kept everything. And when I say they saved and preserved everything, if you didn't eat all the chicken on Monday, it was chicken and rice Tuesday. The little end pieces of the bread nobody wants, cornbread, dressing, everything. Spoiled milk, buttermilk. Everything that you thought should have been thrown away, they preserved it. And the thought was that anything can be preserved and used even if it doesn't seem usable at that time. It makes me think of how I look at things and people versus how God looks at things and people. With me, I tend to look at people with finality. This is what they are and this is what they will always be. So if it's a murderer, I fix them there, or a liar, or a drug addict, or a fornicator. I I tend to fix people where they are. But y'all, this has to be true because it was true of me. has to be true of everybody else. God, yes, he sees us as we are, but you know what else he sees? He sees what we will be. How can he do that? Because he's the one who's making us into what we will be. Yeah, I get discouraged sometimes, not just with individuals, but what about people? What about humanity? Sometimes I wonder, are we cursed? Are we as a people cursed? Why can't we get ahead? Why is there so much poverty, so much violence? Why is there so much brokenness? And Paul says, look, this is the same thing that the prophet Elijah struggled with. Israel at that point had completely violated God's law. And Elijah's desire was for God to judge rebellious Israel. And I'll be honest, that's a reasonable expectation. Sometimes you get tired of dealing with folks who just can't get it right. But notice the difference in the mind of even the prophet versus God. Elijah can only see from his perspective. And look, I'm I'm not judging Elijah. He's a prophet. (laughs) But when you are trying to live right in a world of wrong, it's hard. It's discouraging. And it can feel like sometimes that you're on this island of your own. But the mind of God says this. He sits high, but he looks low. Y'all, we tend to sit low and look low. We think it's only us. But look at what God tells Elijah. He says, I have even now 7,000 people who have never bowed a knee to Baal, and you didn't even know that they were out there. And this is how well-woven the mind of God is. Even when it appeared that everyone had turned away, even when it appeared that everyone left, that everybody rejected, everybody bowed, God says, I have preserved yet a remnant of faithful believers. Paul says to give this people that he's referring to hope. 
He says that God has not forsaken the Israelites, that he has a remnant. In the mind of God, y'all, he is working all of these things and using all of them for good that seemed evil. Even now, when it feels like the whole world is against us, God has a remnant. Victory City ain't the only church. We are not the only Christians. And though it feels like it, he's got more of us out there than we think. And what we've seen in the mind of God is that it takes certain events, certain pressures, certain life experience that bring out the full potential even of Christians. Let's be honest. If things were easy, would we witness? Probably not. If things were easy, would we have community? Probably not. Will we disciple others? No. But knowing the ugly truth about the world, we seek redemption. We band together. I remember I went to this K-8 school, W.J. Christian, the smart people school. And, you know, you go there K-8, I was the big man on campus. I was safe. I was sheltered. And I remember, because I played football, I wanted to go to a different high school than Rams or where everybody else went. So I changed schools. I went to Irwin. Irwin was a a far cry from W.J. Christian. And I remember getting there, and I remember being discomforted. I remember being scared. I remember being alone. I remember being broken. And I look back now, and it was actually that experience, that brokenness, that wounding, that being in an unfamiliar space that actually set me up to come to Christ. I didn't realize until I was much older that when God put me in what was a foreign place, a difficult place, he was actually tilling the ground so that the harvest of salvation would grow up in me. And what I've learned, y'all, is that God can make us feel forsaken so that we will draw near to him. Look, you would never drink water if you were never thirsty. You would never eat a meal if you never hungered. What we learn is sometimes God uses the things in our lives to create a desire for him. The shadow of death is really only a shadow. But God is with us and he always has a remnant. Not just back then, but now and for us. Paul goes on, he says, the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them A spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says that their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, 
Did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles as so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Maybe this doesn't make sense to us initially, but think about it. If you have children, and if you have multiple children who are close in age, when one doesn't do right and the other does, you have to you have to make the other one jealous when you reward. And I don't mean just like giving them something. You have to be very publicly obvious when you lavish the one who did right with gifts. You have to loudly explain that you're so grateful that they are obedient. Again, bringing my mother up. (laughs) She was excellent at this. Because, y'all, I had a tendency just not to do what I was told. I know you probably don't believe that, but I did. Jasmine was always the child who did everything right because she just would do everything right. And so every now and again, my mother would ask me to do something. And, y'all, I moved on my own time. And so eventually she would ask Jasmine to do it one time, and Jasmine would do it. And every single time, it did not matter where I was in the house, I would hear her go, thank you, Jasmine as loudly as she possibly could to remind me that I hadn't done what she had asked me to do and that Jasmine had done what she had asked me to do. Now, why would she do that? Was that to discourage me? Was that to embarrass me? No. It was to remind me, if you do right, it'll be well received. But if you don't, there is always somebody else who's going to do right when you don't. And you know what that was? It was to motivate me in the future, having seen what Jasmine got and what she received and how she was lavished with affirmation and gratitude and gifts. I could have that too if only I did what I was told. This is Paul's point about what God is doing with the Israelites and maybe what he does with all people. When the Israelites rejected him, he said, you know what? That salvation that you've rejected, guess why I'm taking that? I'm taking it to the Gentiles. And now the covenant that you thought was only intended for you, now you see Gentiles entering into that covenant. You see people who didn't come from the right nation who are being lavished with the gifts you thought were only stored up for you. And Paul says, why did God do this? He said, did they stumble in order they would fall? No. He says that God has made them jealous so that they would turn to him. So that they would turn to him. I think about this with us sometimes because I have to remind myself that God isn't just this aloof God, but he is our father. And he is doing what he needs to do to draw us to himself, but also draw those who don't believe to himself. And at the end of the day, more than anything, because he's our father, he cares for us and he loves us. Y'all, even when we felt forgotten, it is 
to draw us to him, not to repel us away. He says, no, they didn't stumble so that they would fall away. He says their stumbling was so that even more people would be able to walk. He says if because the Israelites failed, that meant inclusion for Gentiles. He says, what do you think will happen if Israel believes? And this is the encouragement to us, but it's also humbling. He says, listen, you have been included. If you are in this room, you have been grafted in. You are a part of this covenant, this family of faith. But some people have been cut off. And we know that. There are some family members and friends that we suffer long with who are in the ground. Some people have been cut off. So what? What do we do? What do we do now? Do we relish in our inclusion and say, well, I guess I was included. I guess I was chosen. (laughs) No. He actually goes on. He says this. He says, I actually magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. Because if you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. And you'll say this, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in, and which is true. But they were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. Do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Paul says this. He says, I shrink myself, but I magnify God. How? By making my boast in the Lord. And y'all, for us, it is the same thing. We don't know exactly how God has called us to use our testimony, but it's not going to be by browbeating non-Christians. It's not going to be by aggressively quoting scripture at people who do not know. It is not by confronting people and telling them that they're going to hell, but by living lives that will make God look great. And not just making God look great, but living a life that would actually make God look desirous. I think that's one of our struggles as Christians. Many times we are often sharing how good God has been to us because of our goodness. Or we are living such miserable lives that no one would even want to be a part of this faith. 
But there's another option. Jesus says this. He says, you are living epistles. Being what? Seen and read by men. Let your light so shine before men so that they will see whose good works. Your good works, but glorify who? Your Father who's in heaven. Y'all, if you are truly in a relationship with the Lord, your only desire should be to make him look great. It should only be to magnify his glory. The mind of God should never breed a pride in self, but it should breed pride in him. To close, what does Paul say? He says, when all those false Christians and false apostles were making their boasts in themselves, he said, not me, but I make my boast in the Lord. And where they take pride in their strength, we, we take pride in our weakness. Why? Because when I'm weak, his strength is made perfect in me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the mind of God. We thank you for your ways, God. Lord, we thank you how you have created us in such a way that the more dependent we are on you, the more evident you are in us. God, it is so easy for us to slip into these different stages where we can be prideful about where we are in life. We can fix people in wherever they are in life, in their sins, or we can make decisions about people that you haven't made. We can reject those that you haven't rejected, God. But let us remember that, yes, some were cut off. And the only reason that is not us underground is because of you. Because you, in your beauty and your majesty and your sovereignty, you have preserved us. So, God, as long as we are here, as long as we have feet on the ground, let us run. Let us run knowing that the race that is set before us. It's not just for us, God, but it's to bring those who may be standing on the sidelines into this same race. Those who do not know you that we, by letting you shine through us, by letting the beauty of your mind and your ways live in us, that many will come to know you.